What's up, everybody? This is Cortland from NDHackers.com, and you're listening to the ND Hackers podcast. On this show, I talk to the founders of profitable internet businesses, and I try to get a sense of what it's like to be in their shoes. How did they get to where they are today? How did they make decisions, both at their companies and in their personal lives? And what exactly makes their businesses tick? And the goal here, as always, is so that the rest of us can learn from their examples and go on to build our own profitable internet businesses. Today, I am talking to Greg Rog, the founder of a website called Learn UX. Greg, welcome to the show. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. So we got coffee when you were in San Francisco a few months back. And I believe at the time, you told me that Learn UX was averaging over $10,000 a month in revenue, and you're only working on it basically one day a month. Is that true? Yeah, that's partly true. It's nice to uh, talk about this and think about this this way. And uh, this is how it works right now. I basically spent one day improving Learn UX, so recording new tutorials, um, basically updating the content that I have on the site, and also answers, answering some questions. Uh, and so the things that are not automated that I have to answer myself. But beforehand, I had to spend a lot of time creating the content. So I probably spent about a thousand hours to create the content and create the website and put it live. And from there, I made everything so that it's running on autopilot and I don't have to really work that much on this project anymore. Super cool. So that's like the closest thing to passive income you can get to. A day a month is not that much to keep it maintained and keep it up to date. And even a thousand hours, I think that's about six months of working 40 hours a week, which is a pretty reasonable time frame to create something that can basically (laughs) make you 10 grand a month on autopilot. So I really want to dive into how you actually build a business that's that's so passive, because I pretty rarely talk to somebody who's done that. But first, let's talk about what it is exactly. So learnux.io is the website. UX stands for user experience design. I think pretty much everyone knows what a user interface is, but not everybody knows what user experience is. So in your words, what's the difference between UI and UX? I'm going to explain it it with a short story. So imagine you have an app, and uh, UI is user interface, so it's everything that you can see. So it's the colors, the typography, basically how it's smooth it works. But UX is broader. So if I give you this app and after five minutes, I just ask you, okay, how was it? And you give me an answer. So that, that's basically UX. That's how you feel about the app. That's the overall experience. So you might say that UI is basically a subset of UX. UX is broader and UI is, is just the interface, the colors, the typography and stuff like this. UX is the overall experience. And your website is literally teaching people how to get better at user experience design through videos that you record yourself. Yeah, so that's basically it. So that, that's a library of, of high-quality courses that I recorded myself uh, and the courses cover uh, UI design tools and also some topics from UX. So you have tools like Sketch and Framer and Principle, Adobe Experience Design. So now it's Adobe XD. And the difference between Learn UX and, and other resources, I really focus to bring real world examples and some beautiful examples and some practical approach to learn UI design. And this was the idea that actually came pretty naturally. So th- this is a mix of what I really love doing, basically UI design and education, which I have been doing for many years now. And I started by defining the problem. So I basically thought that there is a lack of materials for professionals, but also people who are willing to be professionals as UI and UX designers. There is a lack of uh, knowledge in terms of the newest tools. There's a lot of tools that are just basically brand new and they have to constantly update their knowledge. But uh, on the other hand, there were there weren't a lot of materials that were great quality and really logically connected, specific, like well-paced, engaging and uh, good quality. So I spent a lot of time creating the content, preparing the content. So that that was the the main um, part from this thousand hours. And then uh, it took me a long while to record them. (laughs) I, I really, it was one of the toughest things, I guess, in my life to record all those courses. But uh, I feel that this um, this was really the, the the advantage of this project of and, and how and, and why it went so well is I really put the content first and the quality of the content content really matters here. 
I talked to Vlad Magdalene, the founder of Webflow recently, and he was telling me how he was inspired by the single YouTube video of a guy named Brett Victor giving a talk about programming and design environments. And that kind of launched his entire career. And I think about my sort of journey as an indie hacker, and I was inspired back in 2008 by a video of David Heinemeyer Hansen giving a talk at Y Combinator Startup School. He was basically yelling at all these startup founders saying, hey, you don't have to raise money. You can just build something that generates yeah. revenue on the internet and do it yourself. Yeah. Uh, is there anything like that that inspired you? Is there any sort of talk or person or idea that got you started on this course? And to be honest, I, I don't think that there was a single thing for me. It's I've been doing this for years and I've been seeing some patterns. I also saw some leverage that I have because I, I, I used to record courses for years now. And I've been designing UIs and I've been searching materials for myself, basically. Uh, there was no one inspiration I got, but I, I really feel that um, th- this was pretty natural. And, and apart from this, if you like talking about the YouTube videos and, and getting inspiration from there, there's also a thing that was really unique about Learn UX because I basically started um, a YouTube channel for Learn UX with four videos. And after probably after a month, I got about five or, or 6,000 subscriptions from those four videos alone. And one of them hit uh, 100,000 views, I guess. So I think that th- there is a, this content first approach is pretty prominent on Learn UX. It's, this is something really valuable. And, and I really made this huge effort to create 10x better content. And it kind of paid off with the videos on YouTube as well. Uh, you don't have to create hundreds of them. You just need to create four and you can get a really big audience from there. Uh, in my case, I, I believe over 10,000 subscriptions on this channel. What was your plan when you went into creating these YouTube videos where you're like, hey, I'm going to make these videos and if they work out and do really well... I'm going to build an entire website full of courses and make money off of that and help people learn. Or were you doing it for some other reason? I already have had the plan. I uh, already knew that I'm going to create this website with those courses. So I did the research before. I knew that people are paying attention to the new tools and there is a lack of materials like this. So I already knew that I will do it in some way. But I started with some easy steps that would validate the idea. So I first put some Medium articles. I recorded those videos and uh, then I combined them. I basically mixed Medium articles with uh, YouTube content, which was like kind of like recycling this content. And it went pretty successful on Medium. There's a little tip there uh, also because you, you, you cannot, um, there's no way to put, for example, some kind of uh, pixel inside your Medium articles. But if you embed YouTube video, you can then remarket those people um, because you can create a Google ad that will remarket people who watch your video. And that's how you can basically embed the video in, in inside of Medium article and then reach out to those people. So what I tried to do initially is basically... I started recording, but in the same time, I tried to evaluate the idea that I had and I tried to validate it as much as possible before I put, uh, you know, a lot of effort into creating all the content. Would you say the idea you had back then is different than what you actually ended up with? Or did all the evidence and all the validation and tests you ran really just confirm sort of your first shot at what the idea would look like? What I managed to do with this um, validation techniques was mainly getting out to an audience and gathering some audience from there and not really validating the idea, which which didn't change that much. I thought that uh, someone will give me like uh, some advices, someone will give me hints on what they want, what, what, what really has to be done. But uh, <laughs> no one was really doing that. If you ask people what do they want, they, they rarely tell you. So this is also true. And um, you have to ask better questions or just observe what they do and how they behave and then decide what they want. So I basically stick to my plan. And I think that uh, the side effect of uh, putting all those materials out was that I quickly built uh, some subscribers. I, I offered, I always asked them for an email or, or I basically asked them to subscribe to some, on the medium, you cannot ask for email. They, they don't have like, they, they can't leave an email, but you can embed some form or something like this. So, so there were people pretty excited about what I do already. They, it wasn't like, 
I launched something from day one. Uh, I tried to reach the audience. I tried to communicate it a bit uh, earlier. So you weren't really validating whether or not this is the right product to build, or what kind of features it should have. Rather, you were validating: Are people excited about this? You know, are the people you're trying to write for? Does your message resonate with them? Do they exist in the kind of numbers that you need for this to be successful? And are they going to subscribe and watch your videos? Yeah, you might say that that my initial idea of validating it and sending out some forms, what do you want, was like, no, no, it didn't really work out. It was like more telling people that, uh, look, here I am, I'm going to do something. Uh, I'm going to check whether this uh, is interesting enough, uh, if this reaches the enough big audience. And yeah, that was it. So I've been talking to indie hackers, obviously, for years now. I go to lots of meetups and I ask people, who haven't gotten started yet, you know, why, why haven't you started? Because a lot of people are super excited and energized by this idea that they can create their own online business and they can start off as a side project and make enough money for them to basically be their own boss and be a free sort of sovereign individual. But then they still don't get started. And far and away, the number one reason people don't get started is because they don't know what to work on. They're like, I don't have any creative ideas and they're kind of waiting for inspiration to strike. And here you are, uh, you've been working in... UI and UX design for a while, and you look out and you say, hey, I want to create a resource to help people learn how to do this thing. But one could argue people already know how to do this thing. There's already millions of people doing UI design. There's already like tons of resources for people to learn. Why did you, even in the first place, consider that this would be a viable idea? And I guess more broadly, how can other people look out on the world and see ideas like this that are right in front of them? Yeah, it's it's pretty uh, difficult to define um, what to work on if you don't have any idea. I, I pretty much believe that all of my good projects, um, they began from my own urge to fill some blanks in the market. And by deeply understanding the field that I'm working with. So basically, it's like solving your own problem, except that by teaching people uh, how to solve it, it might not be your problem anymore because you already know it. And that, that's pretty much all of my, my projects. Uh, that's pretty much of all I do. I try to pass the knowledge that already helped me. So I think the best idea for the project is, is basically that you know that it's effective and you don't have to really search for um, some ideas on what to basically do. The thing you said about not launching anything, I kind of agree that it's really just about starting something, about just putting something out there. But also, I'm a strong advocate of not rushing that much. I mean, it's when you're at speed, everything is blurry outside. It's really hard to concentrate. So if you slow down and focus and at your thing and you discover the flow, then I think you can end up with really interesting product. And it's always best to create a product um, that's an answer for your problem, that solved your problem. Obviously, everyone will say that. Um, and also to uh, make the product for people who you're going to like working with, because I love UI and UX designers. They are my guys. We, we hang out. We basically go to the conference together and we, we, you know, we can talk for hours. So that's pretty much the audience I want to talk to with my product as well. I don't want to go for a product that's uh, trendy because something, you know, that there is money in it, for example. And, and then you end up with people who you don't really care about and you don't really want to talk and talk to them. In terms of, of the speeding, I think that there is more to it. There is uh, today's startup culture is all about pushing it quick. You know, the the now YC startup school started again and it aims for it aims again, I think at four weeks from idea to validation. So four weeks um, of work and then you launch MVP and this is the market first approach, you, you might say. If there's an exceptional market. Even the crappy products uh, or idea will kind of stick. And then as a VC, you can put a lot of money in it and a lot of resources. Mm -hmm. And it might just play well. But but that model is basically meant to serve VCs. And out of, I don't know how many companies are there now for startup school, but probably 30 or 40,000 companies. So they don't really need a lot to succeed, right? So, But for you being one of them, the odds might be, one to ten thousands, and uh, I don't really know a better definition of luck than this. So, so at the opposite side, you have this product-first approach where you put a lot of effort in your product and the development of the product, and you polish it, kind of polish it first, and then you launch it when it's ready. And 
as long as you've done your homework, so you did the research, you're, for example, solving your problem, talking to potential clients, delivering value, etc. You don't really need to hit this exceptional market to be really successful, right? And against what's common knowledge in the startup world, I bet that that this market is everything. It's it's really for exceptional markets and not really for indie hackers who will suffice with smaller markets, but niche enough to to not be crushed by huge players and probably survive uh, this way. And I, I really think that was the case for, for LearnUX. And um, I pretty much did it because I, I took this product first approach. It can be pretty dangerous if you if you think too much, if you procrastinate, if you put a lot of work and, and then something ends up not being really successful. But but to be honest, I've seen a lot more companies and you can tell me that probably because I think I've seen a lot more people succeed with this product first approach, putting a lot of work in the product and uh, then, then the ones that just put something out to the world, like a quick MVP, and then try to polish it and then try to work on it. You had a lot of uh, guests in your podcasts. And yeah, I wonder if, if you have any thoughts on that. Well, you actually wrote a really good blog post or article on Eddie Hackers years ago, I think just a couple months after you launched Learn UX. And you were talking about the process you went through to get the product built and how you validated the idea and like every step along the way. It's pretty fascinating because you went super in-depth about everything you learned. And I think what struck me was how meticulous you were at sort of the strategy and planning thing. You really weren't just throwing spaghetti at a wall and seeing what stuck. Like You're being very thoughtful about what you're doing and why you're doing it. And that didn't mean that everything necessarily worked out, but it did mean that like you were aware of why things could work out. You weren't just kind of crossing your fingers and hoping that you would get lucky. And when I interview people and talk to them about their business ideas, I see the whole gamut. I've talked to lots of people who didn't be who didn't put that much thought into what they were doing, and they kind of got lucky because the things they didn't think about just worked out well. And I talked to I think fewer people who were really thoughtful about things and who planned it all out. But I would guess that if you were to look at the denominator, which is really hard to see, like out of all the people who succeeded because they got kind of lucky, how many people tried that approach? Right? I don't know how many people are trying. It might be much like higher than the number of people who are trying to be strategic. And so even though you might see more people who just kind of get lucky, your success ratio might be higher for the people who are planning and, and really trying to think things <laughs> through. So I think there's, <laughs> it's really hard to say. Yeah. I'm kind of like you. I'm more of a meticulous planner. Like, I don't want to leave things to luck. I want to make sure the product's good and I want to understand who my market is. And I want to try to understand like what the distribution channels are and what's going to work and try to like as best I can come up with all three of those things together and figure out if it makes sense. And if there's any holes in there, look for reasons why it won't work. Because I think it's a safe bet, right? Because um, it's really rarely that I think, yeah, that's one or two or three out of 30,000 companies really um, who just, uh, you know, hit that hockey stick um, uh, effect or just product market fits, fits right away. And it's it's safer to basically prepare yourself and to to learn more about what you can do, what you can launch. And yeah, obviously, the more you do, the more products you launch, you have this, you get this intuition. I, I think that I, I slowly, I'm slowly getting this intuition, but also I think more and more things you realize later that they appear random. There's this book, uh, it's called uh, Black Swan. I don't know. I, I forgot. Yeah. Yeah. By Na- you know, Nassim Taleb. Yeah. So, so one of the takeaways is, is that almost all of the predictions f- f- fail and uh, big things can change, that can change history. Those great things can happen as a result of, of a mixture of, of linked events, but of the unexpected events. And like the butterfly effect, right? Uh, yeah. If you take small steps, you can often reverse engineer those events and drag them down to 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 a minor cause like like connecting this flapping uh, wings of a of a butterfly to hurricane in China being you know yeah. caused in New Mexico but the thing is it only works backwards so uh, you mentioned my post uh, on medium and i this is what i do i i try to give all the knowledge, all my learnings, I have to put it out. I just, if I learn something, if I get some something valuable, I have to put it out. I have to record a course, create a tutorial. I have to write a medium post and I go meticulous. But I'm not saying that everything I did there and if everything I put in the post is good for today. And this is, <laughs> this might be sad, but you can't establish a, 
you can't really establish a framework for future success from from past uh, things, from past learnings like this. So predicting uh, a catastrophe, uh, catastrophe every time you see a butterfly is is useless. But the same thing applies uh, to all those things you read about uh, how to go from ten thousand dollars to one hundred thousand. You know, it's it's really it's really tough to to give a good advice. And I, I figured out that the best advice might be the one that basically is a case study of something uh, pretty technical. So for example, I put this and this amount of money to Reddit or Quora advertising, and I put the correct, the same copy that I put out there for uh, for an ad. And then I can say that from this, I got that many people signing up, that many people paying. This is something that might, might teach you something. But, but it's really difficult to uh, to give some great advices, you know. Yeah, I mean, you don't know how advice is going to work out in the future for other people who are not you in the exact situation that you were in when you did this thing. And even when you look back on why your particular project succeeded, it doesn't necessarily mean you're going to correctly analyze why it succeeded. You know, I think about the past of indie hackers all the time, and sometimes they'll tell people, oh, you know, I did this thing, I did that thing. But who knows if I didn't do that thing, if it still would have worked out. Maybe it would have. It's really hard to say. Yeah. And in your particular case, I think what's interesting and consistent across all the different projects you work on is that you're really an educator. Like you said, if you learn something, like it's you have this burning desire to basically tell other people what you learned and how you did it. And education is just such a powerful force in the world. Like if you're driven to teach other people, you're probably going to be pretty successful because people love learning. People love figuring out how they can improve their lives and their careers and their relationships. And they're obviously willing to pay a lot of money to learn things. Otherwise, courses and colleges would be out of business. And so the fact that you have that kind of bent, maybe if you were wrong about everything else, all your strategies and tactics didn't make sense and were completely in the wrong direction, the fact that you've like glommed onto this desire to teach other people might be enough to, to sort of swamp all the other factors and, and overcome them. Yeah, and I always tell it to, to people because sometimes I even try to pass uh, some knowledge. I try to teach something that I've I've just learned and had some success with it. And it's pretty powerful, but people are not really encouraged to do this because they think that they are not experts in the field. Uh, they've not, they didn't spend like, you know, years on the topic and um, they don't find themselves themselves good uh, teacher in the subject. They are intimidated. So I don't think uh, it's, this is the case. I pretty much, um, I pretty much work with, with, uh, probably 100 authors here in uh, in uh, our studios in Poland. And um, I've worked with experienced ones, with inexperienced ones. And I often see that people are really experienced in the field. They um, probably have some some difficulties transferring the knowledge. They, they, they don't really see this line between basics and advanced stuff. And everything is... Uh, basically easy for them. So um, I think that it's even better to, to to teach what you've already learned. So even not being an expert uh, on it, but if you know that this brought some effect and this, uh, for example, um, so let's say you want to teach people how to write code. I think that uh, even if you don't know the next framework, if you don't know React, but you are a software engineer, you are a front-end developer, and you are just learning React, and uh, you are in the great position to teach uh, this uh, technology because you know all the problems, all the common problems that people face when they learn. So it's not necessarily um, great to be, you know, you can be, obviously, you can have a lot of experience and, and still be an exceptional teacher, but it shouldn't intimidate you to start teaching others that you don't really have that much experience. And I keep saying this to people and I think that everyone can teach something, has something to teach. And this is a great way to start uh, your uh, online business or, or just, you know, pass the knowledge on the internet. Now you have so many um, different opportunities to do that. So in other words, if you're one of these procrastinating indie hackers who doesn't have an idea, <laughs> you can just teach something, you no longer have an excuse, figure out what you want to learn or something that you're already good at and figure out a way to teach other people. And what's great about teaching is there's so many different places where you can teach. You can teach people over an email newsletter. You can teach people through YouTube videos or setting up your own website like Greg did with his courses. You can teach people over Twitter. You can teach people in person. No matter how many other schools or educational websites or products exist, there's always some way where you can teach people through a new channel using your own style and your own experiences and probably find 
some people who are willing to pay to learn. So I think that's sort of my favorite way for people to get started with their very first business. Yeah, that's it. That's a great uh, way to start. And also you can say that there are many courses on the topic that you want to cover, but still it's a good thing to put it out, put the content out. And this is because people like to learn from different people also similar to them. And um, it's not necessarily a bad thing to have another course on React or Angular or whatever, because someone would, you know, like your teaching style or yourself as a teacher. And uh, there's a lot of people out there who, who might say that, who might uh, just uh, choose you as a teacher. So for, for whatever exactly. reason. So that's always a great way to start. Yeah, I was just in South Africa earlier this year. And it really opened my eyes to the fact, I looked up the stat, something like 4 billion people still aren't even online yet. Like the number of people who are coming online every day who are hungry to learn things and improve their skills is massive. And like you said, they want teachers and they want things that resonate with them. You know, if you could target a course or something that you're teaching to like these new people or any specific niche of people, they're going to choose you over all the existing stuff because it really resonates with them. I would also say that it's really, and I have experience in, in that because I also, uh, for the for the past 10 years, I've been recording courses in Polish. I, I run a, a pretty big website here with video courses on, on different topics. And it's really great to start uh, from the local market as well. So this might be interesting thing. So running a project locally, it may sound pretty weird, but initially for me, uh, for example, I never thought of running business in English. And uh, that might be because of, I don't know, I didn't know English so well when I started and I started pretty early. It was pre-YouTube. Uh, I was recording things. So uh, partly it was cultural. Maybe I got it from home, from my parents, but basically I also tried to some kind of, to give back to the community that shaped me in Poland and basically gave me all the skills that I have. I learned programming, I learned design through the help of the, those people. And doing things locally might be really beneficial, I, I guess, because um, there are a few reasons, but the, the one I find really important is how rewarding it can be. And there has been many people I met uh, during the events and conferences who basically benefited from my work. And sometimes it somehow influenced their life or in a positive way, or they found a new job or they opened their own business. And it gave me really huge drive. If I started in English, I'd probably um, only see comments. It's not the same, right? But I met those people. I can tell you. I can tell you a story. Actually, there's a there's a story of a guy. Uh, he uh, retired as a fireman, and he had some time to kill, so he started to uh, learn technology. And at that time, it was pretty early back in 2005, six probably, because it was pre iPhone. Uh, I've been a teenager and I've recorded a course um, on the groundbreaking technology, which was flashlight. I don't know if you guys, yeah, I, I'm pretty old now, I realized. <laughs> but Flash? Yeah, that was, uh, flashlight was um, technology that would enable you to build apps for mobile phones. It was basically a lighter version of Flash Player that worked for, uh, you know, Nokia's old phones before iPhone. So I spent a few months developing a course and this was like the most exciting times of my life. And I said like mobile apps, this is the next great thing, right? But I put it online and just like a few people enrolled into this course, including the fireman. But this was pretty much of a disaster. I spent a lot of time on this and no one really cared, right? So I've been, I think, devastated, you might say. But 10 years later, I met the same fireman and I didn't know him. I, he, he recognized me on, um, in one of the best offices in Warsaw. I, I met him and, and he basically recognized me. He ran towards me and he hugged me and he explained that he, he purchased this course and he explained how the course I made kind of inspired him to start the company. And, and now he, he runs one of the biggest dev shops with mobile apps in, in Poland. Cool. You know, putting something on the internet is like, it's like sending a message in a bottle across the ocean and lots of those bottles will drown or end up being unseen. But sometimes someone will see it and, and just uh, return the message, right? And I bet it's true also for, for indie hackers, man. Uh, there are hundreds of people who can give you similar stories with indie hackers. And I think you should be really proud of it. I, I like the, the point about doing things locally. Like this is a local fireman who you ran into in an office in Poland. And with indie hackers, it's like 
not a very local project. Like I did not make it for other people in San Francisco, but when I go to other parts of the world, I meet all sorts of indie hackers working on their own projects. There's just nothing that can really replace the feeling of meeting somebody in person who's seen what you've done online. And I wonder how much, you know, having that experience has motivated you to do what you're doing now with Learn UX and with your other projects. You know, what is it that gets you out of bed to work on these projects? And how much of that is a component of helping other people and how much of it is a component of helping yourself and improving your own life? That's a valid question. Actually, I thought about it a lot uh, the other day. I think that it really gave me a huge drive to pursue what I do and uh, the stories of people, what they what they say when they meet me, how, how it influenced uh, their path. Obviously, it's I'm not that important. You know, they could have learned from YouTube or you can learn anything anywhere. But the stories that I hear, I think it's the biggest drive. I've never cared more about anything, I guess. So making it uh, local is a good idea for, for multiple reasons. But to make it straight, uh, right now, now, I probably wouldn't start it in Polish, okay? So... <laughs> <laughs> Why not? Yeah, I'd probably go, um, I'd probably go global uh, first. I, I, I'd do uh, English. But uh, it's a great idea to, if you are, for example, creating content, you can always localize it to your mother language. And you can simultaneously create an English version and, and, your, um, and your language version. And this is... The, the language is pretty important. And recently I've been uh, searching for a, a Chinese nanny for my two-year-old son. And um, there's a huge, like huge study on how certain language can affect thinking and acting. And for example, like Chinese, there are tonal language. Chinese is tonal language. It means that you can um, uh, say um, the one syllable can basically mean different things depending on how you intonate it, right? So it's proven that develops the hearing, the music skills and things like that. And, and that's one example. But once in a while, I surveyed a large uh, part of my audience in Poland who spoke good English and they clearly stated that they'd still prefer a course in Polish. So maybe as a founder, indie founder uh, abroad, you also have some edge over those big companies like American companies, right? Those people don't really know your language. They will probably never localize their product as good as you can. So this is also a great advantage. And really, uh, you, you have to think of different languages uh, as different ways of thinking. And even if um, that's another story, I'm a lawyer. I finished law in Warsaw and I was translating contracts. And the contract that has four pages in Polish, usually has one page in English. So it's pretty much, it's very different how you state the sentences, how you explain things and how you understand things. And if you take Chinese, for example, this is a completely different language and completely different structures that you, that you might use. So I think that there's a huge advantage in local markets. And uh, companies that, for example, might probably be able to compete with uh, so big companies with uh, online video courses like Skillshare or Linda or Udemy is doing this locally, but they won't take as much effort and they, they probably won't be as successful as I'm on my local market. This reminds me of kind of what you were saying earlier, which is you don't want to be opportunistic about ideas. You want to do things that resonate with your personality, with what makes you feel good. But at the same time, there's so many opportunities. You know, you start thinking this way and you're like, well, what about this language? What about that language? But everybody listening has something that makes them unique. They have something that they really care about, something they're passionate about. And it's almost always the case that you can start a business that has some of your own personality and care in it. With me for Indie Hackers, for example, it's like I live in San Francisco. Everyone around me is obsessed with startups. And I just happened to be like the one person I knew who didn't really care about raising venture capital. <laughs> I just cared about, you know, generating revenue. Like that was the spin that I put on basically helping people start startups. And for you, it's like there's probably lots of people who are helping people learn UX. But for you, you're in Poland and you really care about this local feel. And so you started courses and videos in Polish helping people around you. And so I would encourage everyone listening to think about like what makes them unique and don't run away from that. Like Inject that into your business and do something that you're authentically passionate about because it's going to be a slog. I know with Learn UX, we're going to get into it, but your first early days like making these videos weren't exactly the most fun thing that you've ever done. 
Yeah. And now you can sort of rest on your laurels and say, okay, I work one day a month. But in the beginning, it was like a huge slog. Yeah. And if you're doing something you didn't care at all about, I struggle to imagine that you would have gotten through it. No, if someone tells you that if you do what you like, you'll never work a day in your life. It's a lie. And it's a lie. I, I love creating content. I love putting it out there. I love high quality content. But I hated it in the studio when, when it took three months and I was repeating myself over and over again. And I was like, it was frustrating. It was so, it, my English was so bad and I had to repeat and I have to re-record every time. And I really hated it. And then I hated it while I had to uh, fix all the marketing stuff and, and sales and probably deal with some paperwork and set up a company and, and accountants and things like this. Man, I hated it. So basically this is the outcome. I, I love the outcome and this is, I, I'm grateful for, for the outcome and what I feel when I finally see it live. But the process, uh, sometimes it's, it's really painful and you have to account for that. It's not, it's not the most beautiful thing, but and the, the other thing I tried to do is, uh, that's why I tried to automate all of the boring stuff. And that's why I tried to uh, write uh, some pieces of software that will help me run this seamlessly, especially the boring parts. So how do you get through this process of working for months, doing something that ostensibly you love, but in reality, the actual nitty gritty of it is just boring and frustrating and you don't have any customers yet and you're not getting paid what drove you to keep going despite those months of, of just drudge work? Yeah, I had to finish. It's like you, I, I don't like to um, spend time, you know, I don't like to give up. It's it's not the thing that, uh, that I don't really like to give up. And I really pursued this idea because I believe in the idea. So I, I knew that. When it's painful, because I I did it in, in past, <laughs> I knew that it, it, if it's painful, the results might be really good. If if it if it goes too easy, sometimes it's it's just pure luck, but but oftentimes you will fail. So I believe in hard work. You can get lucky uh, on the way. That's fine. But I think that a safe bet is just work it out and uh, blood, sweat, tears just eventually come up with a good product and then, yeah. And then trust in your guts and, and follow it. Just be systematic. Just, just don't, don't give up at the beginning uh, because it might be hard at the beginning, but, but ultimately it will pay off. That's a good point. But if you don't want to rely on luck, you really need to put effort into what you're doing. And also if you want people to talk about it, to share it with their friends, to tweet it, to retweet it, to just basically be excited about what you're doing, you also need to put some hard work into it. And I think that doesn't necessarily mean you need to work hundreds of hours per week or anything crazy. You can work a totally normal schedule and just focus. Ruthlessly prioritize, cut out all the other stuff that's not really core to what you're working on and make sure you're focusing all your attention on the main thing so that you can work hard enough on that to do a really good job. And that's what you did with Learn UX. You spent you know, three months just putting together these videos and making them the best that they could possibly be. And even the UX of your website, you're teaching people UX, and so you figured you needed to have really good UX yourself. And so it's a beautifully designed website that you obviously <laughs> put a lot of time and care into. Somebody who's not working hard is not going to be able to compete with that. And somebody who's not focused, who's doing a million different things, is also not going to be able to compete with that. Yeah, that's another thing. Actually, I this is one of the experiments I, I run on Learn UX because uh, there, there were many of them. But uh, I decided to make the website itself a bit unique and uh, I spent some extra time on layout. Um, and uh, most of the those learning sites, they have like some simple landing page. They are all the same. They they give you some, um, some credits about the author. They give you some info about the course. And that's basically, they are really the same. The one I created was pretty much different. And I knew that UI and UX people, they really care about details like this. They are also searching for an inspiration on websites such as Dribbble, such as awards, uh, you know, the FWA. And I thought that that would be really cool if I sign up for some contests like CSS Design Awards. And I actually received a few awards and um, and it gave me the exposition to UI and UX designers and some high quality links as well. So 
I got, I think that I got more hits from, from single, uh, website like awards or CSS design awards than, than, uh, from product hunt, which I think I was, uh, f- first five on product hunt, but I, I don't remember exactly, but I got a lot more traffic from those websites. And th- those were people who are really interested in my product. I think I got about 8,000 hits from, um, awards the day or in, in, the, in the week that they, gave me the award and those were UI UX designers. So exposing the website to them this way, it gave me a lot of subscriptions and a lot of people interested in the idea as well. So looking back with the benefit of hindsight, you're working super hard to get this website out. Is there anything you think you could have just skipped? Any of the hard work that you didn't need to do for Learn UX to get to the point where it is today? Yeah, I think a lot of <laughs> a lot of things I could skip or just uh, don't spend as much time and effort. Uh, there were things I thought matter, but they they were not so important, I guess. So first, I guess that I put a lot of effort in uh, communicating to other people um, who are UI, UX designers that I'm going to do this. So probably a month or two before I... Basically, I recorded myself, like I took an iPhone, I recorded myself and sent out personal message to all of the influencers I knew from the UI and UX world uh, to announce them that, you'll, you know, Learn UX is coming. And uh, to be honest, I, I don't really know why now. And, and <laughs> a lot of people do it. I, I guess a lot of people reach out to, they try to reach out to some influencers, but no one will, you know, answer your call, man. It's, it's like you are just... So... I think the good advice would be to just put it out there, uh, then uh, search for some people who will support your ideas. If they can see it, they they probably be interested or not. But uh, just uh, you know, reaching out to people uh, was was really time consuming, and no one really cared, and I wouldn't care. <laughs> so now, right now, I know it. But there was a lot of things that that pro- I, I would probably skip, and and influencers were one of these things. Yeah, you're trying to generate buzz before your product, before it even launched. And it doesn't seem like it went well. How did your launch itself go when you finally released Learn UX to the world? I did this. Oh, and this is another thing that uh, went pretty much wrong, I guess. So I tried to make this big launch. Like uh, I tried to, I put a counter on a website. Uh, so, uh, and then I probably, I did some announcement that I'm going to launch this website here and there. And it was super stressful. It was, I think that at the time that the counter went down to zero, I was probably the most stressed person out there. And there were only like 10 more people on the website. Really. <laughs> uh, so I've, 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 I would never do it again. And I would just put it out. Don't tell anyone, just polish the website, fix some bugs, and then, then spread the news. Because the launch itself was was really, it's really not that important, I think. And a lot of times you can see websites that uh, has a great launch and they great on product hand, they do great on Hacker News or something like this. And then after a few days, uh, you can see the traffic is going going down and you, you get really frustrated and depressed. You First, you are, you are on this high, but then you, you go pretty low and this can be... Yeah, so I, I, don't, I, I wouldn't aim for a big launch anymore. I would just try to launch as often as I can. So, so instead of launching, doing a big launch, just aim for one launch a week so that you can launch a new feature every week or every two weeks and uh, it will get better from there. Yeah, I completely agree with this whole idea that people put launch on a pedestal as if it's going to solve all of their problems. I'm going to have this one big launch day <laughs> and then I never have to figure out how to grow my product again. Everyone's <laughs> going to keep coming eternally after my launch day. And the reality is like, even if you do have a big launch day, that's just one day. And after that, you have to go back to the drawing board and figure out how to get people to come back to the thing that you're building unless you have some incredibly viral sensation, which in all likelihood you don't. Most apps aren't that viral. So I wonder what your strategy is nowadays. You know, your launch is, is a thing of the past. How do you continue to get people to come back to what you're doing at Learn UX? So every once in a while, I sit down and I try to update the material. And I think once every two years, I'll have to re-record all the content. 
Because all of it. Yeah, I think that uh, probably all of it would go down. I think that uh, you know the tools change, they, uh, the the processes. I, I want it to be current, to be to be of an exceptional value, and something from three years back is not anymore in the software world, ex- especially. So yeah, I think that I will re-record the content, but it wouldn't take me 1000 hours anymore because because i have some uh, some smart ways to organize myself around this co- around the content and probably i've then lock myself for a month and then re-record um the things that i need to and that's it but i want to keep it current uh, but the thing is you asked me about about passive income so a lot of people will tell you to basically um put all your re- resources in one project and update it constantly the thing is Obviously, there's no such thing as passive income that you, I don't know, you might be aiming for a billion dollar dollar exit from your company and then, okay, you don't have to work anymore. But uh, it's not the case for, for most of us and it might be just lucky. But how I define passive income is I can work whenever I want. So I can set up for a three-month work from January to March and then I can take holiday. Then I can, you know, work on some other projects and I know that I have this time fixed for the project that will then generate some some revenue and probably passive income for me is mainly about organizing myself so that I have time for everything whenever I want and uh, of course uh, you know especially indie makers are often deeply involved in the project that they create and they want to put a lot of effort in it every day and and refine it so that it's perfect. You know, no IT project is ever perfect. And uh, basically you have to admit that. So what I also discovered over, over those years is the more you scale the project, also the more cost it generates and the more the more effort it generates. So there is uh, this exponential grow, growth in costs for a medium-sized project. So if you have the company, if you, your company starts to earn more, but then you as a founder, you start to earn less. So I know it's strange, but this is how it works. And, and it's relatively easy, I guess, to grow your project to 1K, 2K, 5K or 10K um, MRR while still keeping it low cost. And then you can use some ready-made solutions for e-commerce, accounting, customer service, automate everything and keep it simple. And you can have one, two, five, 10 projects like this. It's pretty easy. And then you can organize your time around these projects and work wherever you can. So this is ultimately the the holy grail of passive income for me. James Clear has this great tweet and really point that he's written about in some of his books and blog posts that real wealth is not about how much money you have, but it's about your freedom basically to make choices about how you live. And what you were saying is like, you want the freedom to choose what months, what hours you're going to work, where you're going to work from, what you're going to work on. And because you've created you know these these sources of quote unquote passive income, you have that freedom to choose. Yeah, that's absolutely the way I think of it. Uh, I, I once uh, came upon four hour work week, which you obviously know. So at first I thought that this must be for people who really hate their work, <laughs> you know? And then I, I read the book. Obviously I realized that it's about working efficiently. And so I preferred my work weeks to start like four hour work weeks, I could start them Monday uh, morning and then I could start another four week, four hour work week the same day uh, afternoon, right? And then deliver the value. But uh, it's all about staying focused and staying um, efficient at what you do. So what I really try to do is not to procrastinate too much and uh, really put the um, put the time where it belongs to. You, you mentioned competition. I think that those who are doing better job than you do probably work harder, as you said. But also it's possible that they just work on uh, the right thing while you were pretending to work or procrastinating or, you know, organizing yourself around your work and stuff like this. So I really try to, I really focus on on working efficiently and then leaving the time for for the other things and this might be work as well because i i really like what i do and and why would i just spend four four hours a week a week on that so let's talk about some of the practical realities of how you're able to work so little on learn ux what are some of these techniques you're using to work more efficiently and you know what are some things you're not spending your time doing that other founders might be spending time doing 
I try to automate as much as I possibly can. And um, I try to use a lot of no-code tools and low-code tools to put uh, this project on uh, on autopilot with marketing, uh, customer service, with uh, accounting and things like this. There are a lot of things that you can automate. Probably I think you can automate 90% of the online um, business. Uh, depending on the what the business is, but in my case, automation is really the launchpad for for anything else because it it gives me time to to spend on and focus on on the other things. And uh, I'm using a lot of different tools. I, I can code myself, uh, so um, I can code uh, small pieces of software that will help me. But there is also a lot of no code tools or low code tools that will allow you to connect some things for for example i use a lot uh, i use zapier and integromat a lot and uh, those tools allow me to basically glue together um, different uh, tools so mailing list with my um uh with with spreadsheets with with different things that i use for marketing and uh, i can have a chatbot on chat fuel that will allow me to get some you know customer service to to um i, I use intercom a lot and uh, their tools to organize yourself and uh, to answer questions to batch answer questions and automatically answer questions I use a lot of marketing automation, some flows that I built around um, emails that I sent, probably no ConvertKit. I know that you use ConvertKit, right? So you can automate a lot of uh, things with, uh, with tools like this. But on top of that, there's another layer that I often use. And as I said, I'm, I'm using Zapier or Integromat to glue those tools together because ultimately you want to have one output from all those tools. And uh, this is what I do. And uh, this works really well. You can automate a lot uh, nowadays. Yeah, you showed me Integromat when we hung out last year and I was blown away. It's actually a super cool visualization tool for making a lot of these automations. And it strikes me that you know how to code, right? You can actually write code yourself and yet you're still using a lot of these no-code tools, uh, presumably to save yourself time. And it kind of goes back to what you were saying where it's not just about working hard, but you also have to prioritize what should I work on? Just because I can code something doesn't necessarily mean I need to code it from scratch. If there are already existing tools where I can just sort of duct tape things together, that might free up months or weeks of your time to spend on other things. The thing is, uh, I've learned to code uh, when I was 15 or 16, uh, but then I switched to web design. And although I, I probably could code anything, I, I don't uh, find it too exciting and it was taking too long. Uh, for me, I kind of missed this um, instant gratification that that you get from graphic design, motion design, and UI. And when I discovered those uh, automations, bots, cron, AWS, Lambda, I, I got like I suck in it uh, for for a long time. I, I I was really like it was. It felt like the missing piece of of the puzzle in my life just got in place, right? So, so the results are really quick, and there's a little code required to to make software that actually works. And this is the huge advantage that that those tools can give you. Still, you have to understand some things that are going on under the hood and understand the web, how web works, how APIs work, how you can connect and combine uh, those tools. And the greatest benefit of no code is when you really know how to code and you basically take shortcuts with those tools. It's a pretty rare combination to both know how to code but also not be so passionate and obsessed with code that you don't just use it as a solution to every single problem. So I think most no-coders don't know how to code, so they're just like, you know, maybe they're confused about some of those technical details and how the web works. But most developers I know are either afraid of no-code or very skeptical of it and have no interest in learning any of it because it's, it's not their passion. I think that your business, if you run an online business, it can really hugely benefit from um, from hiring those no-code tools. And I know it because I've automated a lot of my business in Poland and probably saved hundreds of thousands of dollars. So, so it's it's really something that you should take into consideration. So what you do right now, there is a lot of confusion around no-code because it's still new. And under this no code flag, you often put tools like Squarespace and Retool. And first is just a simple visual template editor for everyone, right? 
And the other uh, is letting you build complex UIs for database management driven by JavaScript, right? So, so th- this is really different software and there are two, that, two aspects to it. So the first is tools for people who uh, have a little or, or no coding experience and then they can use web builders, which are, are a lot better version of WYSIWYGs that we know from 10 years ago. And they can make landing pages, organize mailing lists, organize mailing lists, and so on and so forth. But uh, now they can even go further with Webflow. Uh, you spoke to Vlad. Webflow is really great. It allows you to create database and e-commerce. Uh, you have Bubble or Adelo, which will allow you to create an app uh, with uh, some more advanced components as well. But what's even more exciting is the second aspect of no-code tools that gives you this superpower to the people who already know how to code. They know how web works. And thanks to the APIs uh, that are everywhere right now, you can connect multiple tools. You can uh, code small apps or use uh, those uh, solutions such as Zapier or Integromat to glue them together. And you can use tools like Retool to create a UI that manages your database or something like this. But this is completely different word, right? The tools for um, no uh, coders and for people who are familiar with the idea. Yeah, there's a huge range out there of different tools you can use. And I think it's easy from the outside looking in to, to form these judgments about what's used for what. But you kind of have to just try it to really understand where it's useful and where it's not. And it has its own learning curve. Even if you're a developer, like you're still going to have to take the time to learn how Zapier works or how Webflow works or how Integromat works. And you can't just skip right by that. But anyway, we're running low on time. I'd love to have you on the podcast again at some point because I feel like we barely even scratched the surface of how LearnUX works. And I know you have other projects and things you're spending way more time working on. And those would be fascinating to talk about too. Before we close out here, I want to get just some of your general advice. You know, you spend so much time building these projects and learning a lot about UX and generating passive income and helping others learn to improve their careers. What do you think other indie hackers listening should take away from your experiences and your goals as they try to build their own online and businesses? So the one advice I already gave you and I want to underline it once more is really not to rush, to take your time, not procrastinate, but basically take your time, put the project out there, but uh, not really try to make it in three or four weeks and and uh, basically take some time to create really valuable content. And I think that in most cases for me, it really paid off. But another advice uh, maybe would be not to worry too much. So sometimes something uh, can occupy your mind for days and people can write mean things and uh, you can also have this problem with knocking to many doors and and hearing no a lot, uh, which is common when you run internet projects. And uh, I think that it's really useful to, as a founder, get the state of the mind that will help you to patiently uh, create your product and not not ra- not rush, but also clear your head from time to time, time and not worry that much. I, I've seen a lot of founders were really stressed out and it's really very difficult. Uh, being a solo founder, especially, it's, there's a lot to take. Uh, there's uh, things that still juggle in your head and you can hear, you, you hear it all the time. You hear about depression and anxiety in, uh, in context of, of founders and, and company owners. So I think LearnUX is successful because how much attention I pay to it and how I basically try to not uh, kill this project by interrupting it uh, to grow uh, by itself. I think it's really valuable to let it go sometimes and not to respond to everything that you have to respond. You don't really have to. You just need to put uh, your head to to work and improve the product. And uh, yeah, that, that might be my advice. Something that I'm still learning how to do to just sit back and let things run on their own every now and then and not stress. I was just uh, on vacation earlier this year and vacations for me are a pretty rare thing. And there are days where I didn't work on indie hackers and it was pretty weird to do that and see things not explode. And then I come back home and it feels like I have to work on this thing for 10 hours a day. Otherwise, you know, this email's not going to get responded to or this other thing's not going to happen. And it's like, usually it's okay to just let it go. So I love that advice, Greg. Uh, I hope to see you back on the show sometime soon. 
Can you let listeners know where they can go to learn more about what you're up to with Learn UX and your other projects as well? Yeah, sure. So um, you can uh, reach out to me at Twitter. I'm at Greg underscore ROG. And you can go to learnux.io or coldless.how and just uh, send a message. I'm here and um, I'm uh, very happy to answer all the questions. I've been in a position where uh, I tried to reach out to many people and I couldn't get an answer. So I, now I read carefully all the messages and I try to help as much as I can. So yeah, feel free to reach out to me. Thanks so much, Greg. Thank you. Listeners, if you enjoyed this episode, I would love it if you reached out to Greg and let him know. He's on Twitter at Greg underscore ROG. Also, if you're interested in hearing my thoughts and takeaways from this episode, you should subscribe to the Indie Hackers podcast newsletter. You can find that at IndieHackers.com slash podcast. Thanks so much for listening, and I will see you next time.